Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. In Melbourne, as part of a joint investigation between the Royal Melbourne Hospital Refugee Health Program and CoHealth Community Health Service, a team of public health professionals have been conducting research looking into the experience of precarious housing amongst refugees in Melbourne and the perceived health impacts of housing. With me in the studio, I have three guests, Dr. Kuzai Kanhutu, an infectious disease physician at the Victorian Infectious Disease Service and current Refugee Health Fellow at the Victorian Infectious Disease Service. We have Jamie Quintana, a student at the University of Melbourne with a background in science currently in her honours year. Our third guest is Jacinta Bongiorno, who has extensive experience having worked in nursing and health coordination in the Humanitarian Settlement Programme. Can you tell me a bit about the research project and how it came about? We in the Refugee Health uh, Program have regular meetings with people across the sector, so including refugee health nurses, policy makers, people at the Department of Health. And early last year we had one meeting where some research was presented around where people are settling in Melbourne. And one of the things that I think struck us all was the frequent finding that people were living in very large groups or appeared to be living in large groups, so houses that were recording anywhere up to 20, 25 people living at the same address. So our research group sort of asked the question, is this real? Is it is it just artefact? Is it just we don't have the data right? And we couldn't really get an answer. So from that, we started thinking and talking a lot more about how are people actually living and is there some research project that we could do to try and uncover some of the fact or the detail behind that what appeared to be sort of a surface situation or a crisis of people living in overcrowded conditions and that's what really triggered the project off. Then there's been quite a bit of refugee housing research but I think what we found was that the source of that research tended to be in with people who specialised in housing, not actually people who do the healthcare delivery side of things. So in a clinic setting where you're trying to make that very close, tight link between health and housing situation, which is where we really identified where the gap was. And I think in speaking to some of the healthcare providers, one of the reasons I felt that was the case was that time and time again, people would say, hey, you know what, I'm a doctor. I don't, I'm not a housing expert. Like I shouldn't have to be sorting out someone's housing situation. I end up doing it, but I just don't feel like I'm confident and capable to negotiate housing stuff. Even social workers who would say, yeah, you're paying me X number of dollars an hour and I'm spending an hour and a half on a phone line to Unison Housing or another housing agency. Is that really a good use of my time? But that's what it's degenerated to, that Mm. people in health are hoping and wishing that there's somebody out there who can just sort this out. So they're also they're not the people who are going to actually be doing the housing-focused research within their context. They're looking for it to come from somewhere else. And in that somewhere else space, housing experts and, you know, 
social determinants. There's plenty of research in those areas around refugees and housing, but it's not coming from yeah. healthcare providers. It's coming from housing yeah. providers. Mm. We often find that um, people coming to Australia, they've told us their background and, you know, it's awful and they're dealing with PTSD, really bad anxiety or depression, but the first thing that they want to deal with is housing. So they either want to find an appropriate house or they want, you know, to make the housing suitable. So for us to, you know, start that treatment, um, start that support of mental health, you know, deal with what you've, you've gone through, um, it's really difficult because housing is a barrier and that is the first thing that they, these people want sorted. Um, and we find that a lot of our time is working with housing workers, uh, working with, you know, community groups to make sure that these people are supported while they're waiting for suitable housing. So it does take up a lot of our time um, and we do see their health deteriorate a lot because, you know, little things like they can't, you know, we want them to have primary health care with a GP, but if they're moving around, their GP is going to change as well. So they're not going to get that stable, appropriate medical care that they need um, unless we're sort of following them around and making sure that they're well supported while they're waiting, you know, for suitable housing. Mm. So it is really difficult. And in terms of some of the definitions here, you you were looking at precarious housing uh, specifically, I guess. And precarious housing, you know, by definition is a is a bit different to homelessness. Uh, so can you talk more a little bit about why you decided to go down the field of precarious housing? Uh, I think in the first instance, a lot of the discussion that we have in healthcare tends to be at the extremes. We always think about park bench homelessness, people who don't have anywhere to live. Uh, but the reality of the housing situations that refugee families come into is that they're often not going to be at that extreme. There'll be other issues around their housing that constitute unacceptable or not optimal health environments. So what the precarious housing framework allowed us to do is to really dig deep and look at everything that's going on, not just asking, uh, are you homeless today, which is a very hard end point, mm. but asking things like, uh, can you afford where you're living? Uh, is the environment a good one? If you've got kids, do they have somewhere to play? Do you feel safe in your neighbourhood? So things around suitability, is it close to shops and community where you can buy food that's, you know, fits your cultural requirements or even just your appetite and then things around the um the security of the tenure so is it a rental is it your own home that you own because all of those options come with them you know a greater sense of security around your control of your home environment and i know jacinta you can certainly speak to how um complex some of those housing situations are and how much just saying are you homeless wouldn't cut it yeah um i guess i work with a lot of people on a range of spectrums so we might have a single-headed female family with a with nine children um, and they're expected to find housing and in a suitable rental house um, all in the first month of arrival. Um, they get short-term accommodation support, but then after that, that's only for a month. Um, and then after that, they're expected to find a house on top of everything else. So we find that it's really stressful for these women to find suitable housing. 
um, and then they lock themselves into a, a one-year contract. Um, but in that time, they might have found their community in a different area, and so it's really hard for them to socialise with the groups of people that they want to socialise with. Um, and then we've got other people who are single males, and they all live together, but they might be dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, mental health concerns, um, and sometimes it works when they're supported by each other, but sometimes it doesn't work and they're just lumped together in a house. Um, and it's really difficult because there's a lot of expectations for them to um, read lease agreements and understand them. Um, often they don't know um, their own what their rights, um, so they might not go to the landlord and say, this isn't working or I've been freezing for winter. Um, they don't know their rights because they've come from places where they've never had these rights before. Mm. Um, so it is really hard to just say, you know, are you homeless? Because they're not homeless. Um, they're not on a park bench, but they're living in really tricky situations um, that we need to really identify to make sure that they're healthy, make sure they're well supported. Mm. Women on the line. Um, you've worked in this area for many years now, Jacinta, and some of the things that um, health providers reported back was that maybe even 10 years ago, this kind of situation wasn't, wasn't, wasn't like this. But now you're having a lot of people who are being, you know, waiting, you know, for ages on, on housing lists or being pushed out further, you know, to, um, outer, yeah. outer suburbs where they don't really have access to services. One of the problems as well is that with people being pushed out and services that they need, specialist services that they need being in, um, I guess, in a Melbourne, some people can't attend appointments because of the cost of even traveling to go and and, and see that. So I guess, yeah. you know, can you give us an idea of how things were maybe even five, ten years ago to what's happening now? I think five to ten years ago, communities were really strengthening. So they were working out where they were living and they were developing these great communities. Um, but those communities are quite close to cities and uh, to the city. Um, and we are finding that rental prices are a lot more expensive um, and where the community groups, the really strong community groups are, those rental prices are quite expensive. So people are going further out. Um, trying to educate people on transport um, is, you know, takes time and getting them to those appointments is quite stressful because they're quite far away. Um, so it is really difficult um, to help these people get to those appointments because their housing is quite far away um, from those services. Mm. An added complexity is people with a disability. We are finding that people with a disability, you know, need certain requirements and they're not getting those requirements, but houses that are suitable for these people are quite far away. Mm. Um, and it, it does, those services which they need are not in those areas. So it is really difficult for them to access healthcare services and support services to access their communities because their houses are just too far away. Mm. In in the context of uh, 
our current political climate, the support services for, um, you know, refugees um, and, 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 you know, wider society as well are, are dwindling in the areas of, of, of housing, health, you know, social service support. Um, can you talk a, a bit about the impact that um, this has had on, on direct service delivery and working with uh, refugees? Yep. So we've got a lot of people um, seeking asylum um, and they're currently their payments are now being reviewed um, and their support services are now being reviewed. A lot of the time they're not eligible for a lot of our services. They're not eligible for public housing. So these people now have unstable accommodation. I'm working with a lot of families that are going rent, you know, month to month to access rent um, from pro bono you know, services. So that's unstable. Um, their mental health is declining, um, and on top of that, their housing is not stable. So the government is making it really difficult for them. We are seeing a lot of mental health problems because of um, the government and because of just their uncertain futures. Mm. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You were just listening to Dr. Kudzai Kanhutu, an infectious disease physician, Jamie Quintana, a student at the University of Melbourne with a background in science, currently in her honours year, and Jacinta Bongiorno, who has worked in nursing and health coordination in the Humanitarian Settlement Program. They joined me in studio to discuss research looking into the experience of precarious housing amongst refugees in Melbourne and the perceived health impacts of housing. And even though before we spoke about people who are being uh, pushed out to outer suburban areas, a lot of your research is focused on there's actually people in inner Melbourne suburbs who are living in precarious housing. And a lot of your research is focused uh, on some of these things that are happening right here in, in inner Melbourne as well. Um, can you talk a bit more about the experiences and what you found in terms of people uh you know, who are living in inner Melbourne? The thing that's really surprising is how close and how underneath your feet it is. You sometimes expect that you're going to have to dig really hard and deep to find a story about somebody who's having a difficult time, but it's just been so um, pervasive. Even families that on the surface you think are really together, you know, they come in, the kids are beautifully dressed, everybody's got a smile on their face, but then when you actually start asking the questions, you're uncovering that, oh, no, there's actually two families, two whole families or three whole families in that household. There's one bathroom and they're all having to kind of vie for, you know, time in the toilet because they're all crowded. And I... Jamie, when we first started interviewing this year with the refugee clients, uh, I'm sure you've got your own reflections from doing the literature review. You kind of come at it with an academic or an intellectual framework, but then I guess there there are probably a few people that kind of spring to mind for you where you go, wow, I never would have imagined that, you know, 2K from the hospital, there are families that are living like this, but you wouldn't know. One story that springs to mind for me is... Um, there's a woman 
but the place she's staying in right now, she doesn't have any power. The power just keeps turning on and off. So she mentioned she doesn't have access to heating for her and her family. They don't have access to a fridge. Um, she tries... Um, she can't use the stove in the kitchen, so instead she tries to use like a liquid gas stove, but she uses that outside, and so when it's a particularly windy day, she just can't cook anything for her family. And she's thought about moving, but she wants to stay there because um, she likes that it's close to her children's school. She's currently got her driver's licence, but um, she's concerned because, of, she's, because she's taking medications for a health condition, and so... Um, she doesn't really want to kind of take the hassle um, for her kids and move her kids out of the school, so she's just putting up with um, the housing situation that she's in right now. She likened her suffering to what her suffering here to the suffering that she was experiencing in the country where she was being persecuted, where her and her family were being persecuted. But I think something that really struck me was that Despite the situation she was in, she was still really quick to mention how grateful she was for people um, that helped her. Mm. I think that one of the challenges for people who are coming to the country as refugees is that there is a little bit of a narrative there around the grateful refugee, Mm. that you should just be grateful that you've come here and now you've got somewhere to live. And I think what that story points to is that, yes, she's really happy to be not having her house shelled or having mortifier outside, but right now she can't cook a meal for her kids if it's too cold or too windy. Mm. Um, But that tension of uh, some things are really much, much better and I'm looking after my kids, they're happy at the school, but there are a lot of things that I think we shouldn't accept as a society that it's good enough for you because it's a little bit better than you know, the war-torn country that you came from. But it also sometimes doesn't allow people to be completely honest about their circumstance because of that fear or embarrassment or people will say, I'm just a picky, choosy refugee coming here and being fussy about my living circumstance as opposed to do we want to not aspire to a a good minimum for everybody Mm. even if they happen to be a refugee who came here from a much much worse situation we should just still aspire to and encourage people to aim for a really good quality of living so that she feels like she can go to the landlord and say hey the electricity doesn't work Mm, the stove doesn't work and what you were talking about Jacinta around um uh empowerment and integration we do a lot of education with um especially females um we have a lot of single females um looking after uh, their children by themselves and we are doing a lot of education with these people but we are finding that there's a, a a range of literacy so the levels of literacy are you know some people have had education um where they've come from or they've never had education and they might not even know what Centrelink or a bank is. Um, So giving these people the tools to be able to speak up and say, look, my house isn't great, you know, (laughs) I thought it was going to be a lot warmer, I thought it was going to be a bit easier, um, takes a lot of work. So we are doing a lot of that work um, with these people um, and it takes time. We want to build rapport with them. We want them to know that there's trust, that if they say something, you know, they're not going to lose their visa or whatever, you know, and sometimes that is a fear. Um, so we, we do want to, it does take time, um, but it is what you say, could say, just that equality um, and, and having a minimum standard that is a, a great standard. Mm. Yeah. 
Women on the Line. Yeah, we see a, a range of levels of literacy and understanding. They come to Australia, um, you know, it might be what they expected, it could be completely different. Just so important to know that these people are coming from such different backgrounds. They're not just a refugee that's, you know, the same. They're, they're so different. Mm. So we want to support them in their different ways and, you know, make sure that they understand and that they've got that level of understanding and education um, to be able to, you know, get the appropriate housing they need. Yeah. And I guess from the perspective of women as well, how, you know, how widespread, sometimes in an overcrowding situation, you know, cases of violence against women? We see a lot of domestic violence. And I don't think with around those changes that have recently been made around giving women who are at risk of violence more rapid access to housing or a safe space, it's still not quick. It's not quick. It's It's not not a case of my family is at risk. Can you find me a place by tomorrow? There's often a delay and there's often that continued exposure to, uh, I guess, a toxic individual within the family. And then if that same partner who is a perpetrator can't find a place to live, there are lots of situations where they end up following the whole family to the next place and being like, well, and community pressure sometimes then as well to say, well, we know you've had, and I've had a, a, a two clients in this same situation we know he's abused you but he's sleeping on the streets and it's embarrassing for our community for him to be seen on the streets please can you just let him stay in the house and we'll talk to him about you know not not hurting you or not harming the kids again and but again it's fueled by this the housing at the core of it the people can't get safe homes and everybody be safely housed apart from each other people end up having to live up and put up with being in houses with people that they actively detest or who Mm -hmm. are actively aggressive against them because nobody can find a safe space and that's kind of the safest but worst possible situation that you could have everybody living in. Mm. And I guess if you turn it the other way, um, a lot of service providers and health professionals, you know, really take that on board as well. They want these people out of those situations and it takes a toll on them. So, you know, they're waiting with the client. I mean, I know it's worse for the client, but it does take a toll on professionals knowing that, you know, they're going home to a safe house, but these people that they're working with are not. um, And so it does take a toll on them as well. So I think this research is going to be fabulous if, you know, we can implement it and and use it appropriately. In terms of uh, the sector, in terms of healthcare professionals, how would you like this research to uh, inform or improve the work that they do? For me, I would like to see a more coordinated effort to address the diversity that there currently is in the the refugee families that are coming because I think Jacinta pointed out, you know, if you've got a single family household of a female-led household with nine kids and often not all of those kids will be hers either. She's just somebody who's put their hand up to support (laughs) a sister's kids or someone else's kids to bring them to safety that the sort of resource or the sort of care package that you're going to have to develop for that person is very different from a 20-year-old Afghan refugee who's, you know, had just almost finished their degree in when they left their country. And what I would like to see is a maybe less of a cookie-cutter approach and allowing us to work and work with people to try and get them to meet like a safe bare minimum so that 
they can access us as healthcare providers in a way that doesn't tear them apart or tear the family apart and also so that there are some reasonable like it's limits set on how long somebody can be living in temporary accommodation because I think we have some families that have been in temporary accommodation for five years mm. more just yeah. moving from this to that or the other because they just there's there doesn't seem to be any way out for them and we sort of spill them out of the system pretty quickly as well yeah. once they've arrived just allowing for more time and opportunity to get things right and to support people until things are right because gone are the days where you arrive and you get a public housing spot within a few weeks it's just not the reality anymore and I don't think our policies and procedures have adjusted to the new normal in in Australia. I think exactly right just having those strict parameters are not going to help our clients Um, and working together and having that understanding that you know, we need to work out how we can support these people, but it's going to be different for each group. Um, and just having that understanding and that, you know, that ability to be able to um, work with the family for a, a, an extended period of time if required, you know, not sticking to these strict eligibility criteria um, or the parameters that we've set in our society, just having that flexibility. Women's on a line. <laughs> Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> We've come to the end of my conversation with Dr. Kudzai Kanhutu, an infectious disease physician, Jamie Quintana, a student at the University of Melbourne with a background in science, currently in her honours year, and Jacinta Bongiorno, who has worked in nursing and health coordination in the Humanitarian Settlement Program. They joined me in studio to discuss research looking into the experience of precarious housing amongst refugees in Melbourne and the perceived health impacts of housing. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigre. I'm Hope Matumbu and I hope you can tune in again next time.